Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 12, 2018, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Rhythm is Gonna Get You Into an Atrial Fibrillation Pathway, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Justin Morgenstern. Justin is an emergency physician and the director of simulation education at the Markham Stouffville Hospital in Ontario. He is also the creator of that excellent FOMED project called First 10 EM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Justin. It's always a pleasure to join you for one of these SGEM hop episodes, Ken. Oh, it is hot off the press. But you know what was even better is that I got to see you in person out in Calgary at the Cape meeting last month. Yeah, unfortunately, I could like barely catch up to you. You had so much going on. One second you were running around in a 10 gallon hat and some kind of giant inflatable horse. And then the next second, I think you're having a really important conversation about kindness. And all the while you were giving out all these cool skeptical prizes, but it was really good to briefly catch up with you in the hallways there. And, and also to meet our SGM hop partner, Chris Bond for the very first time. Well, it was a great meeting, but the SGMers may not know that you are also a very talented photographer and took some amazing pictures of the Rocky Mountains while out west. Thanks, Ken. I don't, I don't know about talented, but I just love being outside in, in the mountains, and it was wonderful of Cape to hold the conference in such a beautiful part of the world. Well, if people are interested in checking out some of your work, where can they go? Yeah, I, uh, if anyone is interested, I do have a photography website just at my name, justinmorgenstern.com. Well, this is another S-Gem, hot off the press, trying to cut that KT window down from over 10 years to less than one month with the help of academic emergency medicine. So, Justin, give us a case. So, you have a 62-year-old Canadian who is on vacation in upstate Michigan, and after a celebratory evening, presents to your emergency department with palpitations. He says, I've had AFib a number of times before. They usually just shock me and send me home. Local practice is usually to treat rapid atrial fibrillation with a calcium channel blocker infusion and admit to hospital. As the conversation progresses, you wonder whether it might be safe to discharge some patients with atrial fibrillation home for outpatient follow-up. Well, atrial fibrillation, rate control versus rhythm control, this is a debate that has gone on for many, many years. It's sort of like the normal saline versus ringer lactate for fluid resuscitation or steroids versus no steroids for sepsis, Coke versus Pepsi. <gasps> Coke is the answer. Now, atrial fibrillation is one of the most common dysrhythmias and patients often present to the emergency department with increased heart rates, chest pain, and weakness among many other presentations. The debate has been going on for years as to which one's the best strategy to address these patients. Is it rate or rhythm control? Well, if you have a patient with chronic atrial fibrillation or unknown time of onset and a rapid ventricular response, rate control and consideration and initiation of anticoagulation therapy are the standard emergency department approaches. Now, in the emergency department, both beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are commonly used for rate control. The SGM number 133 reviewed a study by Fromm et al. comparing diltiazem and metoprolol in the management of atrial fibrillation or flutter with rapid ventricular rate in the emergency department. Yeah, the SGM bottom line from that was the best available evidence shows that diltiazem will achieve more rapid rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation than metoprolol, and it gave a number needed to treat, an NNT of 2. 
Now, the famous Dr. Ian Steele and colleagues published an article in 2011 in Annals of Emergency Medicine looking at variation in recent onset atrial fibrillation management in Canada, and they found a lot of variability. Rhythm control was selected in between 42 and 85% of patients across hospitals, and electricity was chosen as the primary strategy for rhythm control in 7 to 69%. That is a wide degree of variability. But in the United States, there is this fear of cardioverting someone in atrial fibrillation because it could cause them to throw a clot. What often happens is that most patients are rate-controlled, admitted to cardiology, and it's left to them to sort it out. In Canada, at least everywhere I've worked, we tend to cardiovert patients with recent onset atrial fibrillation. SGEM number 88 looked at the effectiveness and safety of the Ottawa Aggressive Protocol to perform rapid cardioversion and discharge patients with these arrhythmias. Yeah, this is one of the areas in where Canadians seem to be more aggressive than Americans. Mostly, we're just nice, kind, polite people. But the bottom line from that episode was the Ottawa Aggressive Protocol appears to be highly effective in converting patients with recent onset atrial fibrillation or flutter back to sinus rhythm. The vast majority of patients, and vast meaning 97% of patients, were discharged home from the ED and with 93% of them in normal sinus rhythm. Now, we're not going to solve this rate versus rhythm debate on this show, but we are going to talk about another big area of variability, and that's the admission rate observed in the USA as compared to Canada. So let's get to the clinical question then. So our question is, can an emergency department algorithm for atrial fibrillation management decrease the number of patients admitted to hospital? And the reference? This is Demeester et al., implementation of a novel algorithm to decrease unnecessary hospitalizations in patients presenting to a community emergency department with atrial fibrillation. And obviously, this is in hot off the press, academic emergency medicine, June 2018. Oh, I'm going to add a sound effect here. Yeah, that was really high-end sound effects. Yeah, that's hot off the press. All right, let's go through the PICO. What was the population? These are adult emergency department patients with a primary diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or flutter. And they excluded individuals with an alternative primary diagnosis, like sepsis, or pregnant patients, or incarcerated patients. What was the intervention? So they were looking at an algorithm for the management of atrial fibrillation that was developed as a collaboration between the emergency and cardiology departments. We'll describe the algorithm shortly, and we'll put it in the show notes. And what did they compare it to? So this is a before and after study. So the pre-intervention data was collected over a one-year period before the algorithm was developed, and then post-intervention data was collected over a one-year period after the algorithm was implemented. They excluded a one-year period around the implementation because the implementation and uptake was gradual. Okay, let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? So primary outcome they were looking at was the rate of hospital admission. And the secondary outcomes? were return visits to the emergency department uh, at 3 and 30 days. Well, being an SGEM hot off the press, we're pleased to have the lead author on this episode. Dr. Suzanne Demistra completed her residency at the University of Maryland, and that was under Amo Matu's tutelage, and it was his first residency class back in 2006. She's practiced at St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, a mixed community and academic ED in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She is the director of Emergency Observation Center and serves as the ED cardiology liaison. Welcome to the SGM, Suzanne. Ken and Justin, thank you so much for having me, and I'm very excited to talk about uh, my AFib study. 
So we're going to be talking about this algorithm uh, we created. And again, we'll put a copy in the show notes for reference. But can you just briefly explain uh, this algorithm to our listeners? Sure. So our hospital came to us in 2014. And they asked us to tackle the issue of unnecessary admissions for AFib and AFlutter. And in particular, they wanted us to take a look at those observation level patients. So those patients who were being discharged the next day. And as a result, we formed the AFib initiative. So this was a collaboration between the ED, myself as the representative, cardiologists, mainly electrophysiologists, and quality nurse leaders. And we sat down and we developed an algorithm to at first identify those suitable for outpatient management. And then second, a straightforward, simple treatment algorithm where we could ensure compliance. And we met a couple times each month for about six months to develop a strategy. You know, I think that is so important. In emergency medicine, we often look after everybody else's very sick patients, and we're never really working alone. Somebody else is always going to, you know, take over the care of our patients. Our, our biggest problems in emergency medicine are almost always when we disagree with our teammates about the best management plans for our patients. That collaboration and that planning ahead so the discussion doesn't happen in front of the patient is so incredibly important. It, it sure is. And so let me briefly describe the algorithm that we developed. So we were pretty inclusive. Our goal was to really develop something that could be taken to other emergency departments, and we realized that practice patterns vary. So we included really all patients with AFib and A-flutter, either with new onset or recurrent AFib, um, provided their heart rates were above 100. And you know, patients had an EKG, of course, in the ED, some basic labs, such as electrolytes, thyroid function, but things like troponin, BNP and D-dimer testing were really only included if the provider thought it was indicated. Something you mentioned earlier that's really important to underline is that we excluded patients with an underlying acute illness. So patients with things like sepsis or PE, these patients require focus on treating the underlying condition, which was likely the cause of the atrial fibrillation. So when we were trying to consider which patients we should admit, we first turned to the literature. And surprisingly, there are still no clear guidelines for who is actually considered high risk or low risk for that matter. And so we ended up relying on the experience of about our eight or nine electrophysiologists and came up with some pretty intuitive features which we decided were high risk. And these were hemodynamic instability, acute heart failure syndrome, acute coronary syndrome, and syncope. Yeah, those criteria definitely make a lot of sense to me, and I like that they're simple and I can remember them. Uh, although the syncope one's a bit of a complicated one, right? There's so many different causes of syncope, and obviously, if I think the patient fainted because of their arrhythmia, they're getting admitted. But more often, patients with atrial fibrillation faint for other reasons. They just happen to have AFib. Uh, so for me, if the patient is a low-risk syncope story and just happens to have chronic AFib, they can probably be managed as an outpatient. So... If a patient had one of these four high-risk high features, they were usually admitted, and everyone else was considered a candidate for outpatient discharge. So patients who were in AFib for less than 48 hours with a low CHADS2-VAS score, or those who were already anticoagulated, were considered candidates for cardioversion, typically electrical cardioversion. So these patients, um, they were electrically cardioverted, and then they were discharged home with follow-up in the AFib clinic, which I'll talk about later. So while there's definitely been a trend toward cardioversion, 
even in the USA. Our regional practice, and I believe the same is true for many areas in the rest of our country, was almost for reflexive administration of an IV calcium channel blocker followed by a drip, followed by admission. These were the charts, you know, I love to grab because you could almost call the admission out before the labs were even back. And so our initiative really sought to change this long-standing habit by encouraging only oral calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. I do have to say that some of our providers still like to do like an IV test dose just to feel more comfortable that the oral medication will work. I have to say when that 0.25 milligrams per kilogram IV diltiazem dose was recommended, I was a little cautious and I thought that the patient's blood pressure would just tank. This hasn't happened in my experience and their blood pressure seems to stay the same or even go up when the heart rate comes down. So getting back to our algorithm, those patients who didn't qualify for cardioversion, they received an oral dose of diltiazem, or we say metoprolol in the U.S. Um, our goal heart rate prior to discharge was less than 110. So we really also practice lenient rate control because this has been shown to be a safer option, especially in the elderly, where they may not tolerate bradycardia. Patients were then discharged home. So here's the critical part. What is missing from our algorithm? You'll notice that patients didn't receive cardiology consultations. They didn't undergo advanced imaging like echocardiography and were not started on anticoagulation in the ED. Again, our goal was to have something really simple, really straightforward in a chaotic ED. The cardiologist felt that we were creating really too much work for ourselves in a, a busy and already very crazy emergency department. You know what? I absolutely agree entirely. You know, in emergency medicine, I think we've sort of developed this complex where we think that we have to do absolutely everything for every one of our patients. But trusting and using our colleagues is is really important. And there are a lot of options, both for the workup and the management of these patients. Um, even the patients where it's obvious that I might be starting an anticoagulant, there are a lot of options. And honestly, I might choose warfarin as a first line for some of these, but it takes a long conversation. So the key here is really building a good system with good outpatient follow-up so that nothing gets uh, missed. And I'm really lucky to have that where I work. And it sounds like you guys did a great job putting that together for yourselves. Yeah. And so that was really a key component of buy-in was creating follow-up plan. So all patients that are seen in the ED are referred to a clinic we created called the AFib clinic. This is really a virtual clinic. So we didn't have any additional resources we didn't add a new space. We didn't hire additional staff. It's just essentially a phone line for scheduling appointments within the cardiology clinic. And so kind of going back to the topic of anticoagulation, because that seems to have been pretty controversial, you know, the same thing you said, Justin. So the ED resources required to really educate someone to choose the right medication, and these medications aren't benign, is probably beyond the scope of our time and our care. And so we decided that the daily stroke risk was very, very low for most patients, and therefore we decided to defer anticoagulation. However, the ultimate choice was always left to the ED provider. Well, I like the fact that it was still okay for the ED physician in your algorithm to use clinical judgment to start anticoagulation if they wanted to. 
Well, thanks for explaining the algorithm. SGEMers, if you're listening to this on the podcast, the algorithm will be posted in the blog. But Suzanne, what were your conclusions to this study? Well, we concluded that the implementation of a novel algorithm to identify and treat low-risk patients with AFib did significantly decrease the rate of hospital admission without increasing emergency department returns. And we believe that this simple and straightforward algorithm could be adopted by other community EDs and help to lower costs and improve patient satisfaction. All right, we're going to run through the quality checklist for observational studies. So sit back because we'll be coming back to you, Suzanne, with some very nerdy questions. Ready to go, Justin? Yeah, let's run it. All right, number one, did the study address a clearly focused issue? It absolutely did. Did they use an appropriate method to answer their question? We'll label this one unsure. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? We'll say unsure again. Although they developed a standardized algorithm, they don't describe how their clinicians were trained, nor do they present data on how often the algorithm was actually adhered to. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? We'll say unsure. How was their follow-up? Was it complete? Uh, yes, it absolutely was for the primary outcome. And how precise were the results? Um, Unsure here again. P-values were used, but we don't have 95% confidence intervals. And do you believe the results, Justin? Yes, I do. Can you apply them to your local population? I will give this one an unsure and come back to it in the nerdy section. And for the last question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yeah, I think so. There's lots of evidence that we can decrease admission rates, although maybe not for this particular algorithm. All right, let's run through the key results. They got close to 600 patients with atrial fibrillation in the pre-intervention year and just over 500 patients during the post-intervention year. The mean age was around 70, and there was almost a 50-50 male-female split. Overall, they appeared to be well-matched at baseline. And for that all-important primary outcome, the algorithm decreased the number of patients being admitted to hospital. Yeah, so their admission rate was about 80% before and 67% after implementation of this algorithm. So that gives you a difference of 13%. So they saw a 13% decrease in their admission rate, and that p-value was significant. How about the secondary outcomes? Yeah, so even with the decrease in admissions, there was no difference in either 30 or 30-day 30 ED return visits. And in fact, the overall bounce-back rate was really low, just less than 4% for both groups. Uh, they looked at a big database, and there were no deaths that they could find. Uh, and there was no change in the emergency department length of stay. All right, it's time to talk nerdy with me, Justin. So let's ask Suzanne some questions about her study. All right, before we start in with the traditional five questions, Ken, I, I just wanted to sneak in an extra really nerdy question and ask Suzanne, why only p-values were reported for the primary outcome? Why did you guys decide not to include 95% confidence intervals? Well, I think it's time to throw my stats guy under the bus but he's aware. Um, <laughs> so I guess I didn't think anything more about reporting more than the p-value since they both kind of provide equivalent decisions about statistical significance. And I'll probably have to get back to you for the rest of my answer. Oh, there's so many more nerdy layers to the p-value, aren't there? All right, let's get to the five questions, though, the formal questions. And thanks, Justin, for trying to sneak one in there on me. All right, the first one. This is about confounders. 
One of the limitations of a before and after study design is the possibility of confounders. There has been a general trend towards more outpatient management in medicine. It is possible that admissions might have decreased even without this algorithm, or that there were other factors, such as the Hawthorne effect, that contributed to the observed decline, rather than the specific algorithm that you developed and implemented. Sure, things like the Hawthorne effect are always possible. But I really believe our practice culture was very deeply ingrained, as I mentioned, in IV drips and admission. And our outcomes, to achieve our outcomes in the culture change, we went through what was not covered in the paper was significant communication in the form of lectures, harassing people with emails, even a mandatory learning module that was tied to compensation. And so I do believe that our algorithm was the major impetus for practice change. Ooh, did you hear that, Justin? They made a mandatory session that was tied to um, compensation. Oh, that's knowledge translation, isn't it? It, Fantastic. All right. So for our nerdy question number two, well, just the considering external validity. So as you mentioned in the manuscript, atrial fibrillation management just varies significantly around the world. Where, where I work, admission rates are much lower than what are described here, and a much higher proportion of patients are managed with rhythm control strategy. How might that impact the generalizability of your results? Well, certainly our study is going to be less useful in other countries like Canada, where you guys already have a great standard of discharging patients home and usually cardioverting them. But I think with a legal climate in the U.S., I think there's a lot of other large community hospital practices that still practice by admitting patients unnecessarily. I think this is a really important point to emphasize about evidence-based medicine. And I've been saying this over and over and over again. It's more than just what the literature says. It also must include the patient's values and the physician's clinical judgment. So in other words, as Professor Beam would say, it all depends, Ken? Absolutely. It all depends. It's contextual. Well, let's move on to number three, and this is about your follow-up. We noticed that despite what sounded like incredible follow-up, more than 10% of patients did not show up for their scheduled outpatient follow-up appointment. You designed your algorithm to be simple, delaying some testing and decisions about anticoagulation until that outpatient visit. Do you think that the difficulty with outpatient compliance could affect implementation of protocols like this elsewhere? Well, outpatient access was essential for something like this to be successful. And all of our patients were contacted by phone by the AFib clinic. And honestly, the reasons that that 10% didn't follow up uh, was less related to noncompliance and more related to choices like they wanted to see their primary care physician or they had a cardiologist or perhaps they were from out of town. However, you know, looking at an urban ED, like where I trained in Baltimore, I think follow-up would be a huge obstacle implementing something like this. But that's really the case for even patients that are admitted and discharged in the urban ED. All right, great. Question number four, and this is a question I have about a lot of studies, and it's really about clinical judgment. So you developed your algorithm in conjunction with the cardiology department. You noted there are no clear consensus guidelines to identify the patients who can be safely managed as outpatients and those who need admissions. So the criteria that you use were based on the expertise of your cardiologists and haven't been validated. Now, do you think that these criteria add anything to simple, unstructured clinical judgment? Good question. I think we can 
ask similar questions for other risk tools like the heart score. And an experienced clinician probably does not need our risk tool to help determine who will need admission. Our high-risk features are pretty intuitive. Unstable patients, those with ACS, CHF, and syncope. Okay, maybe that last one's up in the air. But it was a way to standardize our approach and study the outcomes. I think when I'm teaching residents, it really helps serve as a clear branch point for their decision-making. Well, for the fifth and final point, I'm going to bring up one of my favorite things, and this is about adverse events. Adverse events were inferred from return visits to the emergency department. If patients had adverse events, they may have been unhappy with their care and decided to present to a different hospital. Is it possible that you missed some of the adverse events among discharged patients? Certainly, that's always possible. We have one large university system also in Ann Arbor, but the majority of our patients seem pretty loyal to our hospital. And then my personal just non-validated experience with this is that patients are usually pretty excited and surprised to hear that they're going to avoid admission. So those are all of our five nerdy questions, you know, plus a bonus question. Suzanne, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the SGEMers about your study? Well, I think we covered a lot here. Thanks again for letting me speak about this study. And I guess I would just like to address the idea with rate versus rhythm control, one being better than the other. And so while our algorithm in the study really focused on ED rate control, patients were evaluated for both rate and rhythm control when they followed up in the AFib clinic. And probably two key points to leave the listeners with when you're treating AFib in the ED. One, first look for that underlying etiology or a high-risk feature. And then whether you prefer rate or rhythm control, keep in mind that many of your patients can be discharged home provided they have close follow-up. All right, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, so we agreed that an algorithm might be used to decrease atrial fibrillation admissions, but its value will depend heavily on your current practice. This particular algorithm has not been validated in other populations. So give us an SGEM bottom line, Justin. So there are clearly patients with primary atrial fibrillation who can be managed safely as outpatients. There are no evidence-based criteria for identifying high-risk patients who require admission, so for now we'll probably have to rely on clinical judgment. And can you resolve the case of that Canadian visiting Michigan? Yeah, so you were able to achieve rate control with an oral calcium channel blocker. The patient is asymptomatic, and your workup has not identified any high-risk features. So after a shared decision-making conversation, you discharge the patient home with close follow-up with the cardiology department. And how are you going to take this study and apply it clinically? Well, hospital admissions are very expensive, and they're inconvenient for our patients. So for High-risk patients, obviously the hospital environment might help prevent bad outcomes, but for low-risk patients, we really should consider outpatient management for atrial fibrillation. And how are you going to convey this to the patient at the bedside? So I might say something like, you have a condition called atrial fibrillation, which basically means that your heart is beating fast and irregularly. Now, the management of this condition varies depending on where you are in the world. Seeing as you're currently feeling well, and you have no risk factors for stroke, we have a few options, including trying to shock your heart back to its regular rhythm or just trying to slow it down. Once we have the arrhythmia controlled, we can discuss whether it would be a better option to admit you to hospital or to go home with close follow-up. It's time for the Keener Contest, and there was no winner last week. 
Justin, what's the question this week? So in the Ottawa Rapid Atrial Fibrillation Protocol, what is one of the indications for stopping the one-hour procainamide infusion? Well, if you know the answer to this question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. So now it's your turn, SGMers. What did you think about this episode? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Suzanne and her team about atrial fibrillation? Ask them on the SGEM blog or on Twitter. Remember, the best social media feedback will get published in AEM. Also, don't forget, those of you who subscribe to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage and get CME credit for this podcast and the article. We'll put the process in the SGEM blog. Yeah, and to remind people, so on Monday, it's Meme Monday. So if you want your best social media feedback to be considered for publication in AEM, maybe consider coming up with a meme. Well, thanks, Justin, for another excellent SGM hot off the press. Always being a pleasure being here with you, trying to cut that knowledge translation window down to less than a year or less than a month in this case. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for coming on the SGEM and telling us about your atrial fibrillation protocol. Thanks to you, Ken and Justin. Well, can you read the SGEM tagline in your thickest Michiganian accent? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Go Blue. Talk to everyone next time.